0: Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Jay on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My guest today is Rob Lowe, co-CEO of Lowe Real Estate. We have an amazing conversation around everything that Rob is doing in his career, which is incredibly impressive. I've known Rob for probably about eight years. We're in YPO together. We are close friends. We talk about how Rob built one of the greatest resorts in California, how he created a management company that was eventually sold to Hyatt what he's doing now by building a new hotel management company and everything that low is doing on other forms of real estate, including commercial residential office retail. They have offices throughout the country. It is incredibly impressive. And I am always humbled to get the opportunity to talk with Rob please enjoy my conversation with Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe, thanks for joining me. I'm excited to see you. We've been very good friends for a long time, and you've been someone that I've always looked up to in the industry. So thank you for joining me on Masters of Moments.
1: Happy to be here, Jake.
0: One of the things that always impressed me about your company is just its national presence and how big it really is, but how small and entrepreneurial it feels. So maybe a good place to start for all the listeners would be just to give us a background about how low came to be and how you have this national footprint.
1: Okay. Let's see. Our father started the business now more than 50 years ago. He started the business with a resort condominium development in Aspen called the Gant looked around couldn't find a quality management firm to run their rental management program and then that's how we got in the hospitality management space soon after that this was the early 70s the you know one of these real estate recessions hit and he turned to the distressed Asset management business to stay alive. And that led him to some new opportunities in different markets. So he began to hire partners to work out of these different markets. It started with the West Coast, but eventually went to Washington, D.C. And that's kind of the background as to how we opened regional offices. And then the, the company then sort of became focused on. These regional offices being separate entrepreneurial profit centers, which worked well during the 80s and 90s. But as the business changed and real estate became more competitive, we needed to be able to take advantage of corporate synergies and more specific strategies. And then that's how we got to the strategic platform model that we have today overlaid with these regional offices.
0: And did those regional offices have specific asset classes that they were targeting? Were they only doing hotels? Could they kind of do whatever they want? What did it look like back then?
1: Back in the day, they were very entrepreneurial and they they pursued whatever opportunity they came across. So we were in hospitality, we were in office, we were in industrial, we had some retail, just kind of a mishmash. It was a very opportunistic entrepreneurial structure.
0: And then did that strategy come down from your dad at the top as to what types of things they should be focusing on when? Or did he really turn it to those guys to say, hey, you know, figure this out, we'll help capitalize you, but you come up with a strategy and execute?
1: Yeah, I think that the latter was the basic strategy, which we then had to shift over time as the
0: markets changed. And how would you shift it? So, oh, maybe 15 years ago, we
1: developed a new theme that we called One Low, and that we had to no longer operate as separate individual profit centers in these different markets. And we had to become more strategic and more synergistic. And so we switched from being this entrepreneurial structure to one that we call based on strategic platforms. And so we find a real estate strategy that is fairly narrow and specific in different assets, because they can be in different asset classes that our company culture and competitive advantages are well suited to. And it basically involves strategies where we can connect people and place and so we're in the obviously the hotel business is all about the experience that the end user has in your property and we apply that same model to office we apply it to residential and so if we can really enhance the life of the end user so that they're willing to pay more. To use our real estate product, then that's a strategy that fits our competitive advantages in our company culture. So we're, for example, we're no longer in the industrial space because that it's not helpful.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna ask you about that. So I was reading this article, I think yesterday, about just the massive supply of industrial, and I was thinking about what you were just saying there, and there's no real people in place. In industrial, So what was it about people in place at the time that you guys wanted to lean into?
1: Well, maybe if we start from the hospitality strategy. So we, when the Gantt was created, we got into the resort rental management business. And there's no such thing as a, a cookie cutter approach to that business.
0: What is that that business, just so everyone knows?
1: We would build a resort condominium. It it was the early days of the condo hotel. So we would build a 100-unit resort project in a mountain town or in the desert and sell those units. And the owners were only planning on spending a few weeks out of the year. So we, we would create a project that would work well as a condominium hotel for rental. So we grew that business throughout the 70s and 80s. And then in the downturn in 1990, 1992, when hotels got killed, we decided we could take what we learned in the resort business and start buying hotels at huge discounts to replacement cost. And the first couple of uh, properties we bought were, were branded assets. But we quick, quickly learned that those didn't suit our background as real estate developers. Because when you're a real estate developer, you think from the ground up. You don't think from the top down. So we liked looking at the real estate and saying, okay, what's the absolute most unique customized property that we can build based upon that site in that market and what that cost customer wants in that location? And the, the, the concept for, for the branded assets, particularly in the, in the 90s, was the opposite. So you created a project in a corporate office somewhere and then replicated it everywhere. So that drew us to the independent space. And we started buying independent hotels and resorts and managing those hotels. We were not in the third-party management business at that time. So as we continued to grow the portfolio, focusing on customization and how the guest used our property, and we were successful and became a great model and was one that we learned we could replicate in other asset classes.
0: And in those early days, when you're thinking about launching the management company and you're starting to buy these hotels that were independent, what were some of the early insights you had focusing around people in place that maybe these big brands were just missing?
1: Well, we knew that there was a significant number of the US hotel customer that didn't want cookie cutters. So they, they wanted to... Experience the local culture in the hotel that they were staying in. Now, it it was kind of out of step with what other hotel companies were doing at that time. And that customer base was not nearly as large as it was today, but they were loyal. And once you got a taste of a property that really reflected the local culture, you didn't want to go back to a branded box that could be anywhere in the country. And so we were we were early in that thinking. And in some ways we were lucky because the consumer over time started moving our direction. So what we thought was a relatively small niche grew and grew and became a much bigger opportunity.
0: And were those just more fun, or could you actually make more money because you weren't constrained by the brands and these people were so loyal that they were more adept to spending dollars at your resorts?
1: Well, it was you know, it's really both. So you like to have fun with what you do at work, and for us, it's a lot more fun to do something that's customized rather than something that you replicate everywhere. But the customer is willing to pay you more, and then when you operate, you have the flexibility to only focus on spending money where you think for what's important for that customer in that, lo- in that location. And if you do a cookie cutter, you have to have a much more standardized approach And so you have to spend the same, you have to provide the same services everywhere, even though in one location, it might not be, one service might not be important and another location, another. So you can customize your operating model and generate higher margins.
0: It actually seems like that's a little bit like the entrepreneur model that you guys were based around, because I'm sure who's ever managing these hotels for you has to have this independent mindset where they can come up with a lot of things, because I'm sure you just can't go out and do it all yourself.
1: Yeah. So, and, and that's how culture ties in. And one of our key core values from the beginning has been empowerment. So we've always had this element in our company of empowering people to perform out in you know these Far-flung subsidiaries. And you cannot customize from a corporate office. It has to be, you know, come from the ideas of the local person who's in that market and
0: experiencing
1: what they like there. So that empowerment culture is what enables this strategy to be successful.
0: And do you give them some sort of guardrails or do you really empower them to figure that out on their own?
1: Well, we have a corporate team that works with the in-market individuals and the corporate team is someone that you can run ideas by they share best practices they know you know what's worked in at other properties and can give good ideas or can respond back to say hey we know somebody that tried that and it didn't work so
0: it's a combination of both and this management company became destination right It did. So were you also doing other real estate activities at around the same time when you were building that vertical or were you just really focusing on the hospitality side?
1: No, the company was about half hospitality and half what I would refer to as traditional real estate, which primarily was office at the time. We weren't doing much multifamily in the 80s and 90s.
0: Is office totally effed right now? Are you still in office? Are you still looking at office?
1: No, we are. You know, office is going through a market reset in what is a secular change, but it is always going to be an important part of real estate. If you think about it, there are many industries in which having people at the office for collaboration and training and communication is critical. You know, there's other industries where it's not as critical, but but for those industries where it's critical, they need to get their people to come to the office in order to compete effectively. And now that their employees have a choice of, okay, they can work in an industry that doesn't require me to be in the office. You've got to have great wonderful office facilities to enable those companies to get their employees to come in. And so there there is a opportunity to both develop new properties that suit the needs of those companies that need to have the people in the office and to take older buildings that are currently obsolete and convert them into these new attractive office buildings that will allow these companies that need people in the office to get them there. So there is definitely a future and a large opportunity for office, but it's it's very similar now to the hotel business in that you really have to focus on creating a great environment for the person that works there. And traditional office management companies mostly focused on repair and maintenance and energy Security. Efficiency. Yeah, didn't care about the person that actually worked in the office.
0: So in the office deals or the offices that you own right now, how are you looking to convert them? Are you even looking to convert some to different uses like multifamily or hotel? What what is that thought process going like at your company?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really all of the above. So where we have a building, that we think is physically capable of being a a place that enhances the lives of the people that work there then we'll stick with it as office and you know like you said in most office buildings the person that greets you is is the security officer no we have the the person that that greets you in our office buildings is the building host And they're much like somebody that works at the front desk or at the concierge of of a hotel, and their job is not to make sure, their primary job is not to worry about whether the building is going to be secure, although that's critically important, but it's to worry about are the tenants building an environment out of their daily office life where they I have friends, they do activities together. We have lunch and learns. We have food trucks. We have all kinds of activities that allow people to build community at the office building so that they want to come to the office.
0: Even amongst different companies, you're saying. You're not just saying one company. You're saying across the entire no. building. Absolutely.
1: But, but then there's other. We, we have definitely a strategy that we call office to resi. We've already done this in two locations we have a third project under contract in the dc market and we see it as a huge opportunity for our company and you know a a very important strategy for us because there is too much office space and this country is under housed so it's a great opportunity to convert some of that office space and you can do it in a much more environmentally friendly way than building a new apartment building and uh, with all the carbon usage that that creates.
0: A lot of people have been saying that it's, for some office buildings, it's going to be almost impossible to convert to resi. What are some of the things that you look for when you're evaluating a deal to determine whether you can do that or not?
1: Well, the, the basically the width of the floor plate is critical. So if it's too wide and more squarish then you get a higher percentage of the building that becomes unusable. So you want a rectangle, and so not you know most office buildings cannot be converted to residential, but it doesn't mean there's still not a lot of square footage that can. And one of the great things about it is your typical apartment building built today is wood frame, so it they're constrained by the size of the windows. And because it's so expensive to build them, you can only build a certain amount of amenity space. Where if you buy an office building and you can get it at the right price, there's a lot more extra space that you're essentially buying for free that you can convert to amenities. So the projects we've done so far have a, they really end up being better then brand new apartment buildings because of the great window lines and the, and the, and all the extra amenity space that we can do. So are you like putting it, it, basketball it really, courts it, in
0: these things and just, I mean, crazy? We did, yeah. I
1: mean, it, it almost becomes like an urban resort. Wow. <laughs> we get, you know, co-working and we have uh, golf simulation rooms and uh, there's just all kinds of space that you have that you can put for really interesting purposes and really differentiate your ap- apartment building.
0: Have you ever thought of just combining all three into one building, hotel, office, resi? That way you can subsidize some of the overhead and provide better experiences to all those uses. And then the apartment people get a bar in their hotel. The office people have now banquet space. It seems like it's a potential that people are going to be trying to do over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. So we absolutely do that in our mixed use facilities. And we say we're best when we can combine all of our strategic platforms into one project. A great example would be Ivy Station, which we just built here in Culver City. And it's got a couple hundred apartment units, a great boutique hotel and uh, an office building that now is one of the headquarters for Warner Warner Media. And it's perfectly, and 100,000 square feet of retail. So it's perfectly. And when, when you think about each one of our strategies is connecting people in place, then they really work well together and the sum is better than the individual parts.
0: And how does a deal like Ivy Station come together in your company? Did, do you, someone bring you in? Do you find it yourself? How does that work?
1: Well, that's where our regions come in. So the local people on the ground have a much better ability to find a unique site and nurture it because it takes a while than somebody in a you know in a corporate office somewhere. And so that particular project came out of a relationship that our regional manager had built with the staff at Culver City. And the opportunity arose for a site that Culver City had owned and we responded to an RFP and we were able to get selected.
0: So, in a market like California where entitlements are very, very difficult, it seemed like you already had an inside track to shorten the development timeline.
1: That's absolutely right. And that's why we have regional offices, is because, as I said, you really can't do that from afar. You need local people that are in the market, have built relationships over time, are trusted and respected by the local community, both private and on the political side.
0: And then when these local groups, your local teams, go get a deal, they start working through the process, do they just show up and say, hey, we're ready to go, we need money, we need financing? Do they get all that themselves? How does it then integrate into your bigger organization?
1: Well, so the, the local teams are always working closely with the corporate office and the platform leaders. So when we, for example, when we build Ivy Station in Culver City, that local person works very closely with the hospitality platform leader, so that we're gaining the expertise from from both elements. And then we have our you know our weekly pipeline calls, and so we're always communicating about what the regional offices are doing, and then it's the corporate office's role to work with the regional office to capitalize the projects. So they're not doing that on on their own. We're really providing that service from the home office.
0: And are you typically partnering with institutional partners or are you syndicating it through high net worth individuals? How do these deals often come together from a capital standpoint?
1: We do both, but more often we're working with institutional partners because of the size of our projects. And the capital check—it's just easier to raise money from one source, and that's actually how my where my brother comes in. So, the way we have as co-CEOs divided up responsibilities is if it feels like something more that a CIO would do, Mike is responsible for that. If it feels like it's something more that a COO would do, you know that that's where I come in. And so Mike has the primary role of maintaining all our capital relationships, flying to New York and visiting them. I think you're the lucky one. Uh, (laughs) Well, I travel a lot too. It's just not to New York. Yeah.
0: So how is it working with your brother? We didn't talk about how you came into the business, but I, I would like to hear that story and how kind of you, your dad and your brother, how it all worked out and came together.
1: Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I graduated from college, went to work for a real estate investment company based in Boston, did that for a couple of years, and then came back to graduate school here in L.A. I had the opportunity to move back home and spend time with my dad while I was in graduate school, and gradually over that two-year process, came to the realization that working with him was what I wanted to do the next step in my career. And that was 1992. And we were in the middle of a pretty bad real estate recession. So was that a good
0: time to start or a bad time?
1: Well, it was was good because that's right when we had the idea to start buying hotels and it was a good time to buy land for resort development. So I winded up going into the development side of our hospitality company. And I focused on that for the first 15 years of my career. So I was a hotel and resort developer. I worked closely with Destination, our management company, but I was not overseeing it. Then I got promoted and started overseeing the hotel management company. Three or four years after I joined, my my brother joined. And he came into the more traditional part of the real estate company that was focused on office. And my dad had the idea that he would sort of separate our duties. I would take hospitality, and he would take the other side of the business. And uh, when it came time for Mike and I to assume the co-CEO rules, co-CEO rules, uh, we got together and said, you know, we don't really like this. We'd rather share by function rather than product type. Rob, you seem to like the COO type roles, and Mike seems to like the CIO type roles. And so we split by function. And it works pretty well because we're not competing for anything. We're completely dependent upon each other. And we've we've set up our office so I can actually see him through the glass window right there. In the corner, we have a glass conference room that divides our space. And
0: How often do you guys huddle up?
1: Well, every day that we're not traveling.
0: Yeah, constantly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's awesome that it worked out that way. It did. And did you have any hotel experience or background before you started on the hotel side and developing these resorts? Or did you just figure it out as you went along?
1: I figured it out as I went along. I was that that first job I was in was at a company called Copley Real Estate Advisors, and there was one hotel I had in my asset management portfolio, but it was primarily office, and so that had been in my experience. In graduate school, uh, in between the two years, I actually worked for K and B, then called Kaufman and Broad. So I was doing master plan residential. So hospitality was really very far from my mind, but once I started there, I absolutely loved it. The great thing that hospitality has is it's uh, rather than just being real estate, you're also running an operating business inside the real estate. And there's just a lot more levers to pull, pull to create value. It's a lot more complicated.
0: There's and less we, competition you know, too, right? Yep. So when you were doing these resorts, resorts today, like developing a resort seems like such a foreign idea because of the capital involved, available land, the cost. Was it easier back then or was it just as hard when you were going out and trying to find this resort land or buy resorts, if that was the case?
1: Well, I guess I would say that everything gets a little more complicated as time goes on, entitlements more difficult, lands less available, it's, it's higher priced. But on the other hand, we've, we've learned a lot more. And so we have a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge about what works and doesn't work. So we're still actively in the resort development market and we'll continue to find opportunities and we will stay in that
0: business. And now sitting here today, what are some of the things that work and what are some of the things that just don't work in today's environment?
1: Well, if you're just building a resort hotel, it's a lot simpler than doing a large master planned resort community. They are expensive because you have to invite, you know, you have to include the full array of amenities or they're not going to be successful. And therefore, there's only a handful of locations that a resort hotel can generate a high enough ADR and occupancy to work as a standalone property. So often you need synergies of residential development to help pay for some of those amenities
0: is that a one-time thing or is that ongoing so you need more residents to come to the bar and come to the restaurant or is it really just you need the houses to subsidize the cost of building the resort
1: it's really the latter you know on the former you can certainly it certainly helps to optimize operations by having frequent and loyal guests that own property and buy club memberships and uh, you know it's a very good, stable, and helpful revenue source, particularly in seasonal markets where you need some offsetting revenue in the off-season. The challenge with resort communities is the infrastructure costs have become such a large component that it's very difficult to, to create financially successful resort communities for the first owner. It's always been a problem. If you put in those amenities, and timed it wrong, so that it, and the infrastructure so that when you're hitting the market, you're in an environment where you can't sell second homes. And the second home business is, in an apartment building, you can always lower price and attract a customer. In the second home business, there are times in the market where there are no buyers. It doesn't matter what price you price it at. They're just they're out of the market. And so a lot of resorts fail because they time things right wrongly. And that's actually a very good time to then come in and jump in and pick up the pieces, which we've done a couple of times.
0: Is your preference then to just wait until you're buying it from the bank or some guy that did all the heavy lift and put the infrastructure in and now you can come and enhance it on top? Or are you still pursuing strategies where you're buying raw land and thinking about building a community?
1: you know i would say that you will find a pure ground up project that will work maybe once or twice in a decade so if you want to have a substantial portfolio you've got to be prepared to to buy assets that have been partially built
0: so one of my favorite hotels that you own is a resort in california called terranea and it was one that you built there's single family homes, I think, or second homes. I'd really like to hear the story and how that massive thing came together on the coast in California, probably the most difficult entitlement market anywhere. And I'd love to hear like how that even happened.
1: <laughs> well, it's quite a story. And it's
0: still ongoing, maybe.
1: Yeah. I mean, just about everything that can happen in real estate happened as part of that project. I, you know, I've been involved in it now for almost 25 years because we first, I think we first walked on the property in I think it was 1998, and obviously 100 acres on the coast in Los Angeles County, you know, there was no other opportunity like it. But only a few people were interested in in developing a hotel there because. The concept was that it was too far away from the rest of Los Angeles and nobody would really want to go there. And we looked at it quite differently and said, it feels like it's far away, but it's a totally different environment than the rest of LA County. You feel like you're somewhere on the Mediterranean. Yet it's only 15 miles from LAX, which is one of the most accessible airports in the world. And that we knew corporate group in particular would find that incredibly attractive because they could fly people from all over the country and literally all over the world and get to the resort quite quickly compared to most other resorts, which are much more remote and farther to, you know, harder to access. So we thought we had a concept combining leisure and group that would work. The property actually had a long story before we got involved.
0: Yeah. What was it?
1: Yeah, the reason why the 100 Acres was there, in the 50s, it was developed as Marineland. Marineland was effectively a precursor to SeaWorld. And so it was a very popular theme park for
0: 30 years. It's hard to imagine a SeaWorld on the coast in California today. I just uh, don't see that happening.
1: Yeah. So, you know, eventually SeaWorld came in and its popularity declined. And the owner actually sold it to SeaWorld, who bought it for the animals. So closed it, shipped the animals down to San Diego, and it it sat there decaying. The developer bought it in the 80s. The bank took it back. The bank then went into foreclosure. The government took it over, and the property went into the the RTC, or, you know, the Resolution Trust Corp. And it was auctioned and a local investment group purchased it. After a couple of years, they then decided they needed to find a developer that could and take it through the entitlement process and eventually develop it. So they selected us.
0: And at the time, have you guys done anything that big before?
1: No, that was probably the biggest endeavor at that time. So we had a, so a kind of a two-step contract where we were the entitlement partner with an option to buy when the entitlements were completed. And it took us about two years to negotiate that deal and then create a concept, development concept, that it was acceptable to the landowner, so it would deliver a high enough land value, but would also be approvable in the community then we embarked on entitlement process in the local city and that took 2 years you know this was by far the biggest project that had ever been developed in Rancho Palos Verdes so there were a lot of concerned citizens as you can imagine and for you know for good reason and we were able to get those entitlements took a while but but we got it done how, how long was that pro- that was 2 years every step took 2 years so then in California once you get your Local entitlements—you have double jeopardy, and you have to go to the California Coastal Commission. And it took two years to get through the coastal process. There's lot, you know, lots of interesting stories and lessons.
0: What would be one of them? Not a lot of people have experience at the Coastal Commission. I think uh, everyone would get a kick out of one of these.
1: Well, the the there are a couple areas
0: in which the.
1: Coastal staff overreached. One of them was their initial recommendation was that there could be no irrigated landscaping at all on the property. And how can you have a resort without you know being able to water the plane?
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Ranchos Palos Verdes is a very green place. When you fly over it, the whole thing looks green.
1: <laughs> Indeed. And so that was one of the things where the the actual coastal commissioners, like, what you know this this is crazy we you know they 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 have to be able to you know you can't have an upscale resort without irrigated landscaping and so and you know, we we were able to get that approved at the actual coastal commission meeting, and there were a couple other things like that. but we essentially they approved the project as we had conceived it and as the city had approved it but we then had about 200 conditions 100 from the city and 100 from the coastal commission that we had then had to go execute on before we could get a building permit and some of those were overlapping and different so it took two years to resolve all of those conditions before we were able to start construction so we're now eight years into the project. We get construction started; that takes two years. What what year is this? This is now. Well, we opened in nineteen ninety two, but the next challenge happened in the fall of nineteen ninety one. We saw the stock price of our construction lender go from about. 10 bucks. Wait, you said
0: 1992
1: 30? or what year? So, sorry, <laughs> this uh, would have been 15 years ago. So uh, that, that's like what, two thousand eight. yeah. So yeah, the fall of 2008, I'm getting older and everything's blending together now. Great. Okay. The so you're 15, building a hotel yeah. in
0: 2008. This sounds good. Uh,
1: The fall of 2008, the the stock price of our construction lender goes from 10 bucks to $0.30. So we're like, okay, we we got a problem here. We got to get this thing finished as fast as we can. So we told the contractor, you know, our lender may go out of business. We got to hurry. We started doing two draws a month instead of one. Everything was moving along until about April. So it was going to be a June completion. We got some unusual questions from the lender, and they never funded another draw. And so we had about $25 left to finish the project, including all the pre-opening costs of hiring employees and all those things. And fortunately, we had a very good general contractor that was well-capitalized and realized that they were mo- more likely to get repaid their extra 20 million if they finished the building. By early 2009, we were into the recession, and it was messy.
0: Incredible foresight and on their no part. Long-
1: yeah, we no longer had any liquidity because of what was happening. So they finished the building. We then had to manufacture pre-opening and working capital by, Pre-selling hotel rooms at discounts. <laughs> I was very creative. Our managing director Terry acted in an unbelievable job getting, uh, and that brought you know, real money in. Yeah, we created the cash to hire the people and open the project. And then, right about that time, the bank officially failed, and so and it was it got taken over by the federal government and we thought maybe this trick would last us a couple of months but we lasted a whole year without drawing any new capital without paying that last 20 million to the general contractor and obviously the subs uh, were left partly holding the bag but fortunately starwood capital came in and bought the portfolio of this lender The vast majority were condominiums, a lot of them in South Florida, and almost nothing in Southern California. So fortunately, Starwood was attracted to the idea of becoming our partner, allowing us to resolve all the outstanding items from the unpaid. One other thing that happened is that During that one-year period, we were able to negotiate a very attractive purchase of our mezzanine loan, and Starwood liked that deal and wanted to be part of it. So they funded us the purchase price of the mezzanine loan. They funded us the working capital we needed to resolve everything with the general contractor and the subs, and we were off and running, and we were able to refinance them out about two years later.
0: So they became an equity partner. Were you, did you structure some sort of a promote with them or they just came in straight up? How did that work?
1: No, they became a, basically a lender with a small preferred equity position. We brought in another local family hospitality investment firm from California to be our kind of 50-50 partner and so we had a, a whole new balance sheet and we've been successfully managing the project with them since that time
0: it's unbelievable so at that time were you did you have second homes available or was that something that you started building later on when did the residential component come in
1: no it, it was a one phase project and another one of the more interesting challenges because they were commercial condominiums So they were, in order to get them through the Coastal Commission, the Coastal Commission put deed restrictions on them, that they could not be permanent housing. They had to be second homes. And we had two product types. One, you were limited to 60 days use, and the other, you were limited to 90 days use. And with that entitlement structure, we were able to take non-refundable deposits so we took about 20 million of non-refundable deposits. We had to place a bond in order to get those. All we had to do was deliver that product in order to have those non-refundable deposits stay non-refundable, which we got very nervous about when it looked like the contractor might fail. So we, one of our strategies was we sped up the construction of those units to so actually finish them well before the hotel and well before the lender had failed. Uh, so we had done what we needed to do in delivering that product. It's hard to remember now, but maybe three quarters of those contract holders closed. And then we had to sell in the market the remaining units. First couple of years, it was you know, it was, it was in the, in the Great Recession and there was no demand, but that returned. And and we actually learned that the the Casita product, which is more like, you know, that has the lock offs and the, the lock off hotel keys, it was more valuable as hotel keys. So we stopped selling that product and still own about half of it today.
0: Yeah, they're right on the cliff, uh, beautiful views of the ocean. It's It's amazing. So you delivered that in the heart of the Great Recession. It's tremendously successful now.
1: In addition to this concept that we talked about, about being able to attract both local leisure and national, and international corporate group. And of course, growing up in California, our family had been to every resort hotel on the coast, and you know one thing we noticed is most of the older portfolio of resort hotels were too formal, and they didn't take advantage of the indoor-outdoor lifestyle that. People in California, Southern California like and people in Southern California, the reason why they come here. So we really focused on maximizing our use of the outdoor space at that property and making sure it was, you know, both casual but had enough contemporary elements that it was consistent with Los Angeles, which is a very contemporary city, and you could feel comfortable and you know, in flip-flops everywhere you went. And I think we were successful in delivering that. That's why it's maintained its popularity over these last 15 years.
0: What are some of the other things there that, you know, maybe you didn't realize at the time, but looking back at it now, you're like, oh, this is a brilliant idea. This is really working out. Or what have you leaned in on since to enhance certain things?
1: Well, because we worked on it, you know, we had so much time to work on it. We spent a lot of time on the property and being a large property surrounded by water there's there's actually microclimates within the 100 acres and there there are parts that are more breezy and cool and parts that are more protected by the wind and warm and actually part of the property is less foggy and part of the property is more foggy so we really focus the So we we said, okay, we're going to, rather than mix all of the group and leisure amenities for a big enough property that we can really separate them, and we're going to put the social amenities on the side of the property that had really ideal weather. And, you know, it was just a theory that we had,
0: you know, we used to go on picnics on and it actually turned out- Living the life. You you knew (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you knew what people were doing in California. So it was the idea then to have the social side, the bars, restaurants on one side, and then all the group where the meeting space is, stick those people on the other side, because they're mostly going to be inside, maybe with a little bit of patio space, but they're going to be inside. Exactly. Brilliant. And do you do all the food and beverage there yourself, or do you partner with outside people? How does that work?
1: No, that's a property where, you know, we do it a hundred percent our own. There's about nine different outlets. We have four different pools. Each pool has a different outlet associated with it. You know, one thing we learned, there was a lot of talk that the sun was becoming less popular and, you know, people were concerned about the health effects and, you know, that, that, that wasn't. An amenity of the future. So we put in three pools. It turned out that wasn't enough. We had to go back in and and add a fourth pool. And we've been able to make each one a little bit different. So we have the adult pool down by the water where you know, you've got to be 21 to go. We've got the, the family pool with the water slide and where all the the, the families with young kids go. The new pool that we built, we made that more for teenagers, so families with teenagers who uh, didn't want to be around the young kids. And then we have the spa pool, which is a lot quieter and you know better for couples that want to sit by the pool and incorporate, you know, spa and
0: fitness. Amazing. So when you first teed up this whole deal on the project, you said something. That I thought was pretty cool. And you structured it where you were the entitlement partner with the option to buy the land. Is that a strategy that Lowe has done in other places and one you find to be successful?
1: Yes. You know, landowners like that strategy because we're generally risking the entitlement capital in exchange for locking down a price. And it's a, and we're, you know, we have a lot of experience in, t- in entitlements. We tend to know which projects are more likely to be able to get entitled and which aren't. So we understand that risk better than maybe the landowner. And so it's a structure that works well for both parties. And you know, we're continuing to negotiate deals actually now that utilize that structure.
0: So. Basically, you know what you're going to pay for this land if you get all the entitlements that you want and you want to proceed. So if you end up getting more entitlements than you thought, then that just becomes more accretive to you and your side.
1: Occasionally, we will do a formula that's based upon how the entitlements end up. But more often than not, it's like what you described.
0: I want to talk about the evolution of destination and what it it became, because it's a very fascinating story. Do you want to give everyone a little bit of an insight as to how this amazing independent resort collection called Destination turned into a new venture?
1: Sure. So as we talked about earlier, it was born in the condominium rental management space in resort locations primarily Colorado ski country Hawaii California desert and in the Tahoe area it was an, at that time that business was unbelievably fragmented so there was almost nobody that managed more than a couple of different projects so we were you know, if not the largest You know, one of the two largest companies that focused on that space, but we weren't very big. It was just no no one else had really got because it was your typical operator was an entrepreneur living in the mountains that wanted to manage one building. didn't have the capital to grow beyond that. And then so we in that downturn in the early '90s is when we started buying properties and managing them and shifting it from. Uh, we really stopped growing the rental management portfolio and focused on growing the owned hotel and resort built business. And you know the the portfolio group, you know, fairly good sized. We stayed focused on that independent space, and then the great recession occurred. Shortly after that, we recruited a new leader for that business, and. And we decided jointly that we really wanted to figure out how we could grow it more rapidly than what we were doing just by buying properties, and so we decided to to get into into the third party management business, and then we made the very you know thoughtful strategic decision of not expanding out of our current area of expertise. So we said we're going to stick with independent resort. Lifestyle oriented properties. We weren't going to get into the branded management business. We weren't going to get into the select service, limited service business. We were going to stay with what we knew and we were going to be specialized. And it was about that time that the US customer was becoming more informed about wanting to stay in properties that reflected the local environment and culture. So our market was growing. Investors were starting to get interested in the space. And it was really a very, you know, there was, I guess, a lot of luck involved.
0: Yeah, it's good time. The
1: market was, yeah, the market was moving towards us right when we decided that we could stick with that area of expertise. And so we continued to grow that business. We decided we could turn Destination into a soft brand.
0: So we began to do that. So what what does that mean? You, you're turning it into a soft brand. Was it not already a soft brand? For those that don't know, a soft brand no, is... It,
1: yeah, Destination was really a business-to-business brand in the 80s and 90s, and really the 2000s. And so it wasn't until after the Great Recession that we started to make it also a consumer brand, and we chose the soft brand space because that was more consistent with, you know, creating customized property properties that were consistent with the local culture and environment. The business was growing, it was a good good space for us, but then the brands took notice and they started to start these soft brands and we got worried that we were still too small
0: To compete with them, so you had Hilton and Marriott basically creating Curio and Autograph Collection and whatever other names they were coming up with. Hyatt Unbound,
1: yeah, they they were all jumping into our space. We were we're the biggest that were not affiliated with one of these brands, but we got nervous that we had to be bigger in order to compete. So we decided that we would raise capital. To more aggressively get into the acquisition business and buy hotels that fit this strategy and could be cornerstones of the brand. So we hired an investment bank to help us do that. And as we got started, they said, Well, we've got an alternative strategy for you. We've got another company that really does the same thing you do, but is more focused on urban assets. Why don't we combine? the urban expertise in lifestyle and independent and the resort side, and and you guys become one company. So they entered, introduced us to John Pritzker and Commune Hotels. After a few months of courtship, we decided this was a merger that made sense. Combined the companies, that's when we became two roads. All of a sudden, we were now by far the largest company in this space that wasn't so you know affiliated with one of the brands
0: how big were you like how many hotels did you have at that point approximately we
1: had about a hundred hotels and then we had destination the brands were destination jdv thompson which was you know an exciting brand with a big backlog of properties under development And then we had a really interesting brand in Asia called Alila that was in that same lifestyle, non-traditional brand theme, right as Asians, you know, who had been very brand focused, were discovering the customized space. So we got excited about Alila also.
0: And were you running this big combined behemoth at the time? Or how did, how did this whole merger work from that standpoint?
1: So we, we had a, a president of our management company. We decided jointly that that person would become the president of the merged business. And we would have a board. And John and I were to be co-chairman of the board. And I was going to be the administrative chairman. And so the dynamic of how you manage the company changed because instead of uh, really me managing it directly with president of the business, you know, we now had a board.
0: And what was that like? Because it was kind of like it started as not a family business, but closely held entity. And now you have to jointly make decisions maybe. What, what were some lessons that you learned during that period?
1: Well, I guess first I would say, the venture was extremely successful. We continued to grow; those brands got more powerful, and uh, all of a sudden, we started getting outbound calls from the large, you know, publicly traded companies interested in buying us. The
0: big boys—they're like, "Oh man, um, this is getting a little out of hand. We got to come yeah, in." Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We, you know, the from the family perspective. We have a very specific strategy of not only doing real estate development investment, but owning operating businesses because they provide good, stable, ongoing cash flow. So we had no intent of selling two roads. But when we learned at what price it might be able to be sold, you know, we had to think about it and reflect and with that capital, it would enable us to do a lot more things with our business, provide a lot more flexibility, and we could always get back into the hotel management business. So we decided to sell and, you know, it was a, it was a great execution and it was wonderfully successful. But I did learn that operating businesses are a lot tougher to manage in a joint venture format than real estate is. And because the the cultural components and the long-term strategies and views, it's just a lot harder to be in alignment on when two different businesses are running one business than if it was just our family. So going forward, we want to own our operating businesses Uh, 100%. Just a lot easier to manage that way.
0: So you sold to Hyde. I think you started a new company called Coral Tree. So if that company wants to go and expand, can go out and get contracts, but if it wants to rapidly expand, are you saying that you probably won't merge, but you maybe would buy some other management company so that you can have that level of control and not sort of share decisions with someone else?
1: You have described the strategy perfectly, yes, so we've already bought one one small business, and we're, you know we're constantly looking to add another business that would fit well in with what our strategy is today but we when two roads got very large, it became more difficult to service the owner of the hotel in the way that 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 we like to do it because you just have too many owners. So our strategy with Coral Tree is to stay smaller, so that the leadership at Coral Tree can continue to really have direct have the time to have direct communication
0: with our owner clients. And can it still be just as profitable of a business staying a little bit smaller than the big two roads combined venture, or is there really a lot more scale, and you can make a lot more money there. it Just might not be as enjoyable.
1: No, I mean, Coral Tree. Even now, just three years in, we haven't reached the point where we're uh, at our size max. Uh, we're, you know, we're very profitable. You know, and over time, you 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 meld your portfolio to include more profitable contracts and exclude less profitable ones.
0: So you're firing some clients and then what are the contracts that you want today? Now that you have the ability to start a management company from scratch, what are you thinking about that you learned from your past?
1: Our most unique area of expertise is in managing complex resort projects. And so that is the core business of tree, The expertise and strengths that come from managing complex resorts can transfer well into certain urban assets, particularly ones that are sort of urban resorts. So we will have a part of our business that does manage urban assets, but they're going to be ones that are more full service and more resort-like in the amenities that they provide. And then occasionally we'll do, you know, less strategic assets for a strategic client that really wants us to manage an asset for them.
0: So do those bigger resorts just offer you more opportunity to create value for your owners, more levers to pull, more things to think about, they're more fun? Is that the story?
1: All of the above, yep.
0: So one of the coolest things about you is how you've created these business units and... It's fascinating how you incentivize people to stay with you and lead these business units and make it work for everyone. So how do you think about incentivizing, whether it's a leader or a development person on your team, to make sure that they stay with the company, feel that there's ownership, and uh, not go try out and start a a competing firm?
1: Well, there's a few natural strengths. In family-owned businesses that aren't automatic, but they provide opportunity to do things that are, in some ways, more attractive than non-family-owned businesses. For one, we have the luxury of being able to think longer term, and we're less less distracted by immediate noise. I would say it's more natural for us to develop. A coherent consistent strong culture because of the family nature of of the way people think and we tend to be less bureaucratic in our decision-making processes we can respond we're just much more ra- we have the opportunity of being much more rapid in decisions because you can just my brother and i can walk
0: yep you're entrepreneurial. In office
1: room and yeah decide in five minutes, and that's attractive to you know employees. you know you put those three together, and it's a great environment to work in. You understand the culture it's consistent you don't have to worry about different cultures in different regions. you can get decisions made rapidly. so I think it's really the attractiveness of the culture that allows us to hire great people, and have very low turnover. Obviously, you have to reward them, and they have to build themselves strong financial balance sheets for them and their family, and that comes through incentives. But it's really the culture of our business that is the most key in hiring and retaining these good people. But but we do give, you know, obviously the incentives are critically important. We kind of have a three-tiered system, So, we have your annual bonus, which is based upon both your personal and a set of company goals that are calculated in a formula at the end of the year. And then you have your more lumpy incentive fees, which is when you build a great project and sell it, and we generate a large promote, they get a percentage of that. And we actually take a piece of all of those promotes and put them in a pool and share that pool with all the regional and platform leaders. And then for the most senior people, they become shareholders of the company along with the family. And, you know, that's the the, the most long-term sort of the retirement portion of their incentive structure.
0: So how much time do you spend thinking about culture in the company and doing things to ensure that, you have a great culture other than just being entrepreneurial. How intentional are you from the touchy-feely side of culture?
1: Well, that, that's another one of the things that I've learned over time, which is you naturally think that if you tell the culture story sort of once a year at the annual meeting that everybody listens and
0: remembers. (laughs) It's like every entrepreneur's first mistake.
1: Yeah. You got to communicate it as frequent as possible. You got to get out. You got to travel. You got to be in the field. You got to go to the regional offices. When there's a divisional meeting, you have to go attend that meeting and tell the story and talk about it. And culture, there's two elements to it. There's... The formal culture, which is what the company states the culture is, and it's usually represented by your core values. And those core values are absolutely critical. You need to have the right set of core values that back up what you want to do as a company. And that becomes the face of your culture. And when people are thinking about do they want to come to work for you, they look at those core values. The other is the informal culture, and that's how the people in your company actually act when they come to work and those cultures those two elements can be aligned or totally out of alignment one of the things Mike and I inherited was a company with a very strong culture that my dad had built and his partners along with him and the longer you have of a consistent clear culture the easier it is to maintain, the more people understand it inside and outside of the business. So we're a little bit benefited by our longevity in that area. But no, we a lot of what we do, 15 to 20% of our role is culture building between both Mike and I.
0: It's a beautiful place to leave it. It's been incredibly humbling watching you over the past eight years or so that I've known you do amazing things in your career. I have one final question that I ask all the guests and I'd love to hear your answer. So it's simply, what is... Fire away. Yeah, go ahead. No, I said fire away. Fire away. Okay. Don't worry. This is an easy one. Okay. Well, you can include one of your properties or exclude, but what is the favorite hotel that you have ever been to or hotel experience that you have ever had?
1: There is a hotel in Southwest France that I've been to a couple times recently called La Corniche. Physically, it's a great property. It's nothing exceptional, but it sits on one of the most dramatic pieces of real estate I've ever been on, looking out on the bay and on the ocean. It's got a great restaurant. It's a really relaxed part of France where mostly French vacation. So you real really feel like you're experiencing the local culture. The oysters are amazing. The cheese is fantastic. The wine is You know, it's Bordeaux wine. Nothing better. Right. Then on top of it all, just south of there, there's great surfing and great beaches. Really?
0: Wine and surfing? That's like your perfect combo.
1: It is. It is. (laughs) That's my current, current favorite hotel to visit.
0: I hope we can go there one time together with the Wives. Thanks for joining me on Masters of Moments. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Hi, right, thanks, Jake. That was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Jay I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Worzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.